We're going to be in John chapter 7. If you want to turn your Bibles to John chapter 7, we're going to look at verses 1 through 24 today. Just as we get started, remember the theme of the Gospel of John is found in chapter 20, verse 31, where it says, These are written, John the Apostle said that these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's desire in writing the gospel is that you would believe so that you would have eternal life. But along the way, through this book, as we see Jesus' ministry and his teaching, his interactions with different people, with the crowds, we often see people not believing, don't we? And as we read through chapter 6, we saw people not believing because what they really seemed to want was a Messiah who'd keep their tummies full, right? They wanted their tummies full. They wanted to give them an endless supply of free food and keep up with really all of their demands. And Jesus' brothers in chapter 7 are going to show a little bit of a similar kind of unbelief today. We might call this kind of unbelief or a motivation for unbelief lust. Not usually how we would use that word, but lust really is a desire of the flesh. And we would define it as wanting to take from somebody else for what I believe to be, what I believe to be, though it's not, my own benefit. That's how they were treating Jesus. That was a motivation for their unbelief. But then we'll see today in chapter 7 another motivation for unbelief. And this time it's going to be fear. Fear. And there are two sides to that coin. Uh, The fear of man. One is the fear of rejection. I don't want people to reject me. And two is the desire for their approval. Does that make sense? I both want them to not hate my guts, and I want them to tell me I'm awesome. Both would be great, thanks, right? That's how that works. And as people uh, seek up to keep appearances, in today's narrative, we're going to see that happening. I'm going to read real quick. In 1 John, in John's epistles, a lot of times we'll see the Gospel of John encapsulated. And I'm going to show you just some verses. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, it says this. Do not love the world... Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For, and here's where we see these motivations for unbelief. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, like keep my belly full, and the desire of the eyes, keeping up appearances, being a delight to other people's eyes, being approved by them. And these things, how do they get compared? The pride of life. Why do I want Jesus to give me everything I want? Why do I want everybody to not reject me and to give me approval? He says here, it's, it's pride. It encapsulates both of these things. It says this is not from the Father, but it's of the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So, now in John chapter 7... Just as a little summary of the first chunk here, verses 1 through 9, they're going to set up the rest of this story, this scene for us today. We'll see that Jesus spent six months in Galilee since the end of chapter 6. So from the end of chapter 6 to the beginning of chapter 7, there's a six-month gap. And in it, Jesus is in Galilee. Uh, He spent most of the time teaching his disciples. Uh, These days were scattered about here and there with, with crowds. There were times of miracles, times of these kinds of things happening, but most of the time was just spent with his disciples, teaching them. 
a little bit of time with his family. We have to assume at least at the end, because in the beginning of chapter 7, we see him talking to his brothers. Uh, It says, though, in the six months, Jesus went all over the place through Galilee. Matthew 15, Mark 7, uh, they tell us that he started up in the north. He made it all the way to the northwest corner of Galilee and made it all the way to the southeast corner of the region. So he traveled the whole thing. And like I said, healings occurred, miracles done, crowds built up at times, but Jesus spent most of his time teaching his disciples and then others that might have gathered around from time to time who wanted to hear his words. Remember, Peter didn't want to leave Jesus because Jesus has the words of life. We also find that Jesus' half-brothers, as I said before, are not believing And with the same kind of unbelief as the crowd of those former disciples from John 6, uh, they want him to proclaim himself with his miracles in Jerusalem. And they want to be with him right there by his side when he does. I'm sure for totally selfless reasons, right? Uh, But Jesus was not going to go to this feast in Jerusalem today for that kind of fame, for that kind of glory. Uh, Not the kind of glory that people want. The kind of glory that would uh, come when the bread of life, though, would give his life. That's the kind of glory he's looking forward to. So let's jump into God's word today in chapter 7, verse 1. And then it has it starts with these words again, after this, after this. So the time has passed. Jesus went about in Galilee. Uh, he would not go about in Judea because the Jews, and this is specifically the Jewish leaders here, the Jews were seeking to kill him. You say, well, Why? Remember last time he was in Jerusalem talking to them, he told them that he was God. And so they wanted to kill him. And it wasn't that Jesus was not willing to die, but as we'll see later, his time had not yet come. God's perfect, sovereign plan would come to pass right on schedule, as it always does. Verse 2, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. And sometimes this is called the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was observed in September, October, because their calendar is a little different than ours. So for us, it would either be September or October every year in the fall. And that festival, that feast, served the purpose of remembering the way Israel lived in tents in the wilderness. And so those booths, those tabernacles, it was like a tent, a temporary home. And so all over Jerusalem, people of Israel would gather together and build up these tents, these temporary homes to remember this. It was one of three required feasts every year, and it was the best attended. So think about that for a second. They were required, and it was the best attended. So some things never change, right? Some things never change. But at the Feast of Booths, they would put the tents up on top of their houses, in the streets, anywhere else they could find, until the festival concluded with the big assembly on the eighth day. So this is a whole week and a day thing. Verse 3, so his brothers, remember these are his half-brothers, right? His brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. His brothers are saying this to Jesus. And was this mockery of all the disciples which Jesus had lost, quote-unquote? Were they coaching him up on how he should be doing this Messiah thing? Like they're saying, if, if you want a bunch of followers and if you, if you want to claim to be the Messiah, then do it in Jerusalem, for crying out loud. Do it in Jerusalem. The Messiah, the Messiah can't reign from Galilee. You need to go get the Sanhedrin to see how awesome you are, right? And you need to get them on your side, and then you're, then you're going to be good to go. Then you can do this thing. Or was this a, an attempt at personal glory? As if to say, how about you do all your miracles while we are around? And maybe we can benefit from it. 
verse 4, it says 4, and this helps us to see the nature of Jesus' ministry that his brothers even saw during these last six months. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. And the idea of known openly, it's a figure of speech, like outspokenness, plainness, obvious to everyone. It was a term for being famous, for being a celebrity, a public persona. This is what Jesus' brothers are trying to encourage him to become. And they say, if you do these things, show yourself, reveal yourself to the world. And then verse 5 gives us the reason for all this. For not even his brothers believed in him. So if you had put his brothers into a category from chapter 6, which one would it be? Were they believing in the words of life that Jesus was teaching? Or were they hungry for more signs, more action, and for selfish gain? That's kind of an easy one, right? And they're saying, if you do these things, right? If you do these things, kind of like, if you're so tough, let's see what you got. It's mockery. Think about these other things, if statements to Jesus. If you're the Son of God, come down off of the cross. If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And his brothers say, if you do these things, then show yourself in Jerusalem. It's mockery. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Meaning, it's, it's not time for my big reveal, but it looks like you're ready for yours at any time. At any time. This idea of being ready for your time, your glorification, and at any time means that these brothers and the crowds are always ready to get what they wanted to their own glory at an instant. In an instant. Since the glorification that we're prone to want is the kind where I get glorified, where my own glorification and selfish satisfaction is the deal, any old time will do, right? I'll take it any time. How about now? Oh, it didn't work then. How about now? And boy, yesterday was a bad day, but maybe now. You get the idea? As soon as anybody wants to glorify me, I'm ready. That's how we think in our flesh, right? In our flesh. That's how it is. It's kind of like, remember, uh, who remembers the old movie, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? And I mean the old one. The old one. The good one, right? The little girl in the red dress, Veruca Salt. Veruca Salt. When did she want whatever it is that she wanted? Now. I want it now. And her daddy, he walked around like he was big stuff, didn't he? He had all his money. He could get her whatever she wanted. He would kind of make a face and get his pocketbook out and get ready to tell anybody what he wanted for his precious daughter. But then as soon as he didn't do it the way she liked, who was in charge? Who was running that household? (laughs) Precious little Veruca, right? That's what was going on there. Um, Tomorrow's devotional from James 5 encourages us to have our hearts established in the Lord believing in his promises to come in his perfect timing, patience, so that we can be patient and hopeful even in the midst of suffering. That's kind of an opposite, isn't it, to what we're seeing here. Even when your brothers mock you, even then. Uh, Veruca wasn't very good at that, and neither were Jesus' brothers, and in our own strength, neither are we. We're not very good at waiting. Uh, But Jesus, the Son of God, he was being patient wasn't he? He's being patient, doing the will of his Father, God the Son submitting to the will and the timing of God his Father. Verse 7. Jesus says this next. It's kind of dropping a bomb here. Verse 7. The world cannot hate you, brothers. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because 
I testify about it that its works are evil. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Uh, Jesus' brothers didn't testify that the world's works were evil uh, because they didn't think they were. It's hard to say something's bad if you think it's good, right? They participated, they endorsed, they approved, all of those kinds of things. If your goal is to get the world to love you, then tell them everything that they're doing is great. Do we still not see that in the world around us today? This hasn't changed. But does this hatred have anything to do with facts or with reason? You say, well, no, not really. It has everything to do with your affirmation and your approval. We can't expect the world to like us and approve of us if we want to take a stand for what's right and share the gospel with them. Sharing the gospel. Uh, we'll have to be willing to forfeit their approval of us in order to love them, in order to share the truth with them. So I'm not talking about walking around and pointing at everybody's sin. Like, you wicked sinner, you wicked sinner, oh, I can't believe you. Can you believe these people? That kind of turns into a self-righteous attitude, doesn't it? I'm not talking about that. Uh, certainly, certainly not talking about uh, the person who goes on the social media or goes on the internet and makes a bunch of nasty, hateful, sinful comments about how stupid everybody is. Not talking about that. I'm talking about sharing the gospel. What, how? What does that mean? I'm talking about sharing the gospel with people. If you lovingly share the gospel with a lost person, what do you have to say? What does the cross teach us? Well, God's love and grace, of course. Yes, that. But why do we need God's love and grace? Because we're sinners. Because we're sinners. We need forgiveness because we have sinned. And the Jews didn't want the cross. They didn't want to eat the bread and drink the wine, right? They didn't want to eat the flesh and drink his blood. They didn't want to partake of that. They didn't want the cross. They just wanted a king. They didn't want Jesus to be the bread. They wanted him to deliver the bread. And so when Jesus taught and when we share the gospel, we have to talk about sin. And when we do, we risk offending the hearer, don't we? It's a risk. And the world hates Jesus because he testifies that their works are evil. And think about this now. That's why we say that we're scared that people will reject us if we share the gospel. Isn't it? has to at least be a part of that. Why are we scared to share the gospel with people? Well, I don't want them to reject me. Why would they reject me? The same reason they rejected Jesus. Because we have to say that their works are evil, that they're sin, that they're sin. We're scared of rejection. So they, we know, they want our approval, even if it costs them hearing the truth. Even if it costs them hearing the truth, they want our approval. Don't tell me I'm a sinner. And when we want their approval, when that's what we want in our heart of hearts is their approval, even if it costs them hearing the truth, that's not right. That's not right. And it's not love. May God help us to love him more than the world's approval. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. It's bitter animosity, hatred, and a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. The fear of man is so dangerous. It's debilitating. It's bondage. 
So we can't expect the world to like us and approve of us when we take a stand for what's right and share the gospel with them. And we can't expect the world to change because we've perfectly argued the logical reasons for what is true. That doesn't work either. Uh, The world doesn't actually want to know what is objectively or even scientifically true. It wants you to tell them they're great. That's what we want in our hearts and our flesh. We want to know that we're great. And if you don't tell them that they're great, if, if you don't tell them that they are or are not great, and that they, in fact, need a savior, they might hate you. They might reject you. And their hatred of you and their hatred of Jesus and God's word will be perfectly acceptable to them. It's okay. It's acceptable. It's permissible. You know, tolerance. Think about that in our culture. Tolerance defined as agree with me or you're evil or you're wrong. In church, there's nothing new under the sun. Sometimes we act like that's a new thing, but there's nothing new under the sun. This was true in first century Israel, and it's still true today. Uh, We use different buzzwords from generation to generation. Different lifestyles and cultural tendencies and acceptances hold their sway and gain and lose ground from decade to decade and century to century, but nothing in the heart of man really changes. The heart of man is desperately wicked. Who can know it? but for the grace of God. And what we just read here, it shouldn't slow us down. What we're talking about shouldn't make us feel discouraged. Think about this. The Bible was just right again. The Bible sees this and knows this. Jesus said this again. God knows what's happening. He knows what's going on. The word of God was written in the first century AD, and it's just as applicable now as when this was written. So we should grow in our resolve and grow in our confidence and in love, sacrificing ourselves for the benefit of others. God is on the throne. Christ is risen from the dead and coming again. So let's go take the gospel to the world. The world hates Jesus, either through direct rejection or by changing or altering who they decide to think he is, who they want him to be. Because, why? Because he tells us that we're sinners and in need of salvation. That's the reason. And then even in our rejection, while we're dead in our trespasses and sins, God showed his love for us. Romans 5, 8. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And all that the Father, this is John 6, all that the Father gives to Christ will come to him. They will never be cast out. Christ will raise every one of his own from, from the dead on the last day. Christ wins. And in Christ we win. So we can love people. Now, because Christ wasn't interested in the kind of winning his brothers were shooting for, uh, he sent them on ahead to Jerusalem. And we're back now in John 7, verse 8. Jesus said to his brothers, You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, meaning in, in the manner which you're asking me to go. For my time, my big glorious reveal, has not yet fully come. Um, Even in his triumphal entry, if you think forward to his triumphal entry, that would even have to wait until the week of his crucifixion. Jesus wasn't about doing this this way. And after saying this, Jesus remained in Galilee. uh, But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up. Not publicly, but in private. So it seems like we have a problem in in this chunk here, right? Because it said Jesus was not going to the feast, he said, I'm not going, and then he went. I'm like, what? But what kind of going is being talked about here? 
what kind of going is being talked about in this context, and it's that big glorious reveal, right? The big show, this triumphant entry with all this glory and praise. And it's not time for that. Not time for that. Jesus' brothers wanted him to go to make a name for himself, or maybe for themselves, perhaps. But Jesus wouldn't be pursuing that kind of entrance. He would go quietly, not looking to wow anyone, not trying to lure anyone in the flesh to join any kind of fan club that he might have. So verse 11, the Jews, meaning the Jewish leaders, they were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And that he in the Greek is that one. So they're saying, where is that man? You know there's trouble when, when the authorities are asking, where is that man? And there was much muttering, verse 12. There was grumbling, complaining about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. He's a deceiver of the common man, the unlearned people. He's leading them astray. But not the religious leaders, of course, because they couldn't possibly be duped by this guy. Yet, verse 13, for fear of the Jews, again, the Jewish leaders, for fear of those Jewish religious leaders, no one spoke openly of him. So question, why was there muttering? Why was there grumbling and complaining? Why were the people who thought maybe Jesus was a good man complaining about it? That doesn't seem to make sense. Why did they think he was a good man? What did they even mean by that? And I wonder if what they were saying was more, more like, kind of like, give him a break. He's just trying to help people. I'm sure he's a great guy. That kind of thing. So it wasn't necessarily them affirming their belief and love of the coming Messiah as much as it was a, hey, don't be so hard on him. He's trying to, he's trying to help people. Regardless, the people are all grumbling about Jesus, yet in a quiet way, so as to not be heard. To not be heard. Remember, the Jewish leaders are hunting for Jesus. And they're getting a little angry that he hasn't yet arrived on the scene. So no one wants to say anything too loud about him, because if they do, the authorities would have started questioning them. You know where he is? Are you one of his followers? And it says the people feared the Jewish leaders. Whether they thought Jesus was a good guy or a deceiver, they wouldn't dare be known to publicly disagree with the decision of their religious leaders. Well, why not? Because they were scared. They were scared of the consequences of disagreeing with these leaders more than they were concerned about who Jesus actually is. They felt trapped. And rightfully so. In John 9, we'll see this down the road here. In John 9, when the man who was born blind, who was healed by Jesus, he was brought in for questioning. Remember this? The Pharisees demanded that he, and they said this, give glory to God by calling Jesus a sinner. And then after he refused to do exactly what they told him to do, they called him, they said to him, you were born in utter sin. And you would teach us? They just verbally slapped him and said, get out of here, right? And they kicked him out. And that give glory to God meant do what we say. And if you don't do what we say, you're not giving glory to God. And that would be called abusing authority. And it probably wasn't the first time the Pharisees had done something like that. And it wouldn't be the last so the crowd stayed hushed until they knew what they were supposed to say in public. 
And, and by the way, what was it that they were eventually told to say? Fast forward even more, and they say things like, let him be crucified. His blood be on us and on our children. Verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? And they were impressed by his abilities. They were shocked, amazed, but not changed spiritually. And since these are the leaders in the temple who are amazed, they're saying, How did this guy get so smart? Since we didn't teach him. Impossible. No one could possibly teach like that and speak that well if they didn't learn from us. And even though the word made flesh was teaching the word of God right before their eyes, they never viewed his teaching as anything more than something to be confused about because there couldn't possibly be a godly person whom they had not created themselves. They never questioned Jesus' content. They just tried to disqualify him because they hadn't given him their stamp of approval first. But then Jesus gave them the biggest stamp of approval you can get. Verse 16, Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Jesus did have a stamp of approval, didn't he? Matthew 17, Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. There's a stamp of approval right there. Verse 17. Jesus says this, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God, meaning the teaching I'm teaching right now, or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So speaking on my own authority, that was, that was being put on par here with having been taught by those leaders. Jesus is saying they were only speaking on their own authority, which they were totally satisfied with, right, by the way? The rabbis of that day would base their teaching on what their rabbis taught them who had gone before. That's what that stamp of approval, that's why it was so important. Okay, so if Rabbi Joseph, these aren't real ones, I'm, just, I'm sure there was a Rabbi Joseph at some time, but just going to put some names on it, okay? If Rabbi Joseph taught Rabbi Ezekiel everything he knew, then whenever Rabbi Ezekiel taught in the temple, he'd be telling everybody, as Rabbi Joseph always said, and then Rabbi Joseph would get all the glory and praise. Make sense? That's how it worked. That's how it was supposed to work. And Rabbi Ezekiel, he'd get his turn when he was older, and then he could teach the younger. And then they would quote him, and he would get his praise. There was a system in place, and it was working for crying out loud. Like, I'm getting the praise I want kind of working. So what does this guy think he's doing messing with our system? And Jesus is telling these people and these Jewish rabbis that if their will, if their desire is to get the approval of man and to seek the glory of men, they would never be able to see and understand the will of God from the word of God. Not happening. How can you tell if what Rabbi Ezekiel's saying is actually biblical if all you know is what Rabbi Joseph always says. There are a lot of implications there. And that practice is done in more than just Judaism. Their fear of man and hunger for man's approval kept them from truly understanding the word of God. That was the bottom line. 
So, we have to ask ourselves, what is the prerequisite then to understanding the Word of God? We say, well, it's a reverence for God and for His will above all and a willing and submissive heart to learn from Him. Humility and lordship. And after that, what would the prerequisite be to teaching the truth that you've learned? Well, the teacher has to be willing to sacrifice their own praise for the sake of God's glory and for the genuine good of the hearer, not their own. The teacher must be resolved, as if to say, they might hate me for this, (laughs) but I serve the Lord and I love them, and they'll be blessed if they receive it. Does that make sense? And by the way, are these things possible outside of the grace of God through Jesus Christ? I don't see how. And we ask sometimes, that being said, how could the Jewish people possibly not understand a passage like Isaiah 53 when that passage is so obviously Jesus? It's so obviously Jesus, the suffering servant, our Savior, who died in our place. But here's why. This passage right here, here is why. It's the same reason these Jews didn't believe, even when Jesus looked them right in the eye and told them who he was. It's because their will was to do man's will. So they could not and they cannot understand. Trapped by their fear of man and pursuit of earthly glory. We see people who maybe have heard the word a ton and we just don't understand why they haven't repented, why they haven't changed, why they don't believe God, why they're not following Christ. And they've heard the word and they've heard the word and they've heard the word. What is wrong? What is happening? If my will is to do man's will, I will not understand and I will not be changed. I need God's grace. I must have God's grace. And their will is to do man's will. They cannot understand, so they're trapped by their fear. These Jews are trapped by their fear of man and their pursuit of earthly glory. And as a result, none of the leaders even understand or acknowledge that they weren't even keeping the law. And Jesus says this to them in verse 19. He said, is not Moses giving you the law? They say, oh yeah, Moses, Moses. Yet none of you keeps the law. There's none righteous, no, not one. He said, why do you seek to kill me? You don't even keep the law. Why are you seeking to kill me? Now those guys loved hearing Moses' teaching, but they didn't learn from God through the teachings of Moses in the word of God. They were law breakers, but they didn't see themselves that way. The law the teaching of it, demanding it from others, and seeing themselves as being after the order of Moses, lifting the man up, because lifting the man up lifted them up. That became, that system became their way of righteousness. That's what they were doing to obtain righteousness, of achieving it. And then remember what Jesus said in verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The very thing the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders were doing to achieve righteousness was intrinsically evil for their own glory and praise. And Jesus is calling them out for it right here. Then after the crowd hears this, remember the crowd is right there, and they hear Jesus, and he just threw it down with the Pharisees, right? He just gave it to them. And they jumped up and snapped at this. Verse 20, the crowd answers, You have a demon! Who is seeking to kill you? As if their Pharisees or their religious leaders would never do such a thing, though they were. And with that, Jesus' point is proven, sadly. 
Who did the crowd side with here? When the heat was turned up, when the pressure was on, did they side with Jesus or did they side with those Pharisees? And the answer is the ones who have them stuck in their fearful religious trap. That's who. And think of the pride that might be welling up right now in the hearts of those leaders as they see these people turn on Jesus and follow them. The people, even though they did so with fear in their hearts, sided with their Jewish leaders instead of Jesus. They felt like they'd won the day. Or at least that's what they thought. And this is super hard. This whole thing is hard because you could you could say these people have been duped, this crowd, these Jews, but they've been duped by other duped people who have taken advantage of their similarly sinful hearts. Their fear of rejection, their desire for approval from their leaders was the fuel that was burned in order to lure them and to hold them in bondage in this system. Which was all twisted up and manipulated because the leaders all had the same problem. This desire for the approval and praise of man. Why did they do what they did? Because they desired the approval of men and they feared their rejection. Why did the people follow them? Because they desired the approval of men and feared their rejection. Both. And the fear of losing that approval was what kept so many of them, both the people and their leaders, from believing on the one who could set them free. Repentance means to turn. It's a change of mind which results in a change of actions. And if I'm turning to Jesus, that means I'm turning my back on the things that used to hold on to me and that I held on to so dearly. And it's not the people. It's their approval. Their approval. Verse 21. Jesus answered them. And the them here is the Jewish leaders. Jesus didn't even respond to the crowd. He knew what their accusation was and where it came from, where that question came from, and what fueled it. So he just says right to the religious leaders, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. We wonder what that work is, but we're going to see in here in a little bit. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. Remember, they were elevating Moses because it elevated them. And Jesus says, it wasn't even Moses who gave you that. You should know that. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's body whole? And so now we know what Jesus was talking about. It's the healing of that man at the pool of Bethesda from John 5. And again, for the record, Jesus didn't break the law when he healed that man. And he's the Lord of the Sabbath, so there's that. And then he says to them in verse 24, Do not judge by appearances. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So here was their method of judgment. How they measured whether something was good or bad. If it doesn't make you look good, appearances, before other people, and the right people to be exact, right? The right people, the ones who you particularly value. If it doesn't make you look good before those people, It is therefore wrong. That's what judging by appearances is. Judging by appearances means that if it doesn't make you look good before other people, it is therefore wrong. If it makes you look good before other people, it is therefore right. That's a terrible system, isn't it? What does that do to you when you're around a different crowd? It turns you into a hypocrite, doesn't it? And it it holds you in bondage. And you constantly fear what other people are thinking about you 
and you start making decisions about what you ought to do because of what you think people are thinking about you. What a trap. How sad. And in this world, it's awfully hard to put your faith in and live for Jesus Christ while keeping up appearances and seeking the approval of man. So if you're here today and you know that you've never turned your back on the things of this world, on the praise of man, I ask you now to put your faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross for your sin. Believe in Jesus Christ alone and be saved. Christ is your freedom. If you have not understood and if you realize even in today as we looked at the word of God that you are held in bondage, Christ will set you free. Believe in him alone and his finished work alone on the cross for the payment of your sin. Call on him as your Lord and Savior. Christians, please remember that the food and the water that this world offers you and still offers you today will always leave you hungering and thirsting for more. Think of like salt water and fast food. You just want more, and it just tears you up, doesn't it? You'll never get enough approval. You'll never not be rejected enough. You will always clamor for more. And when you get some approval, your appetite will just grow. It'll never be enough. Christ is the living water. He is the bread of life. When we put our faith in him, we're brought into this process, this process of growth, progressive sanctification, in finding our gladness in God. Finding our gladness in God. And does he run out of resources? Does he run out of things to be happy and blessed about? Of course not. We find our gladness in God and not in the praise of man so that we can now love others, not fearing them, not fearing them, we can love them because he first loved us. And when we fear rejection, when we hope for approval, we're, we're looking to and hoping for what we can get from others. But love is not like that. Love is sacrificially giving of myself for the benefit of another. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Verses 18 and 19 in that chapter. There is no fear in love. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, what others will do to me. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. And then let's hear from the Apostle Paul, who had certainly lost the approval of man. This is from Ephesians 4, first verses 1 through 3, and then verses 11 through 16. Verse 1 says, I therefore a prisoner. Talk about rejection. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. And by the way, was he out of the will of God when he was in jail? No, he's in the very center of it. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That's bigger than me. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another. How do we do that? In love. 
eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And then here's the system. Verse 11. The system that Jesus was confronting was all messed up, wasn't it? And then here's what God gives us, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, uh, these different leaders and teachers. Think about this in contrast with what the Pharisees and the rabbis were doing. Two, he gave all these leaders to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge. We can't have that unless we will what God wills. The knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to build others up, not to tear them down for my own benefit. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that, why? So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. If you want to hold people down and get them to affirm you and tell you you're awesome and not reject you, you want them not being confident. You want them not being sure because you want to be able to tell them what to do and where, where to go on your whim. But that's not what Christ has called the church to be. We're not tossed about like children by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, instead of that, speaking the truth in Love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. For from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Another aspect of this leadership thing is the church rise and fall on the leaders. When every part is working properly. Everybody is significant. Everybody is important. And one of the possible whiplashes from this message today, from the first part of it up until those passages, might be to isolate yourself from people in a desire to not allow the fear of rejection or a desire for approval to persuade you to do wrong things or to want wrong things. Someone might want to do that, to stay away, to isolate themselves. But that's not what God has called us to do. That's not the answer. That's not the answer. That's kind of like saying, uh, you shouldn't lie. Put off lying. Okay, I'm never going to talk again. That's how I'm going to make sure I don't lie. No, it doesn't say that. Also in Ephesians 4, it says to start telling the truth. So then what is the exchange? What is the exchange that we need? God hasn't called us to isolate ourselves. That wouldn't be what repentance looks like here. Instead, what we are to do is to exchange spending time with other people in order to get approval from them. To exchange that for spending time with others to give them love and encouragement and support and truth as we all grow in grace together. So church, let's give all the glory to God where it belongs. Let's rejoice in our salvation in Christ because your salvation, your salvation, your salvation, my, it's all the same, isn't it? For the same reason, for the same God. Let's seek out God's will and know it from the scriptures. And let's sacrifice ourselves. Give of ourselves for one another. And when each part, that's every single one of you, in case you were curious. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you. Our natural desire is to really be praise and glory robbers. We so desperately want people to tell us that we're amazing. We want people to build up our own selfish pride. And we fear that others may think less of us than we want them to think of us. And God, we sometimes get deceived into thinking that that means that we're important, that that's going to make us do great things because we think so highly. But Lord, your word says and reality teaches us that that is the opposite of what is true because it's all a trap. And when we clamor for the approval of others, they become our God. So God, we thank you for your kind gracious, good love to us. We thank you for the grace that you gave to us through Christ and his shed blood on the cross for our sin. We thank you for the freedom that you've given us, that the chains have fallen off, that we can know you and love you and have the freedom to love other people unconditionally. Lord, you didn't love us because you knew how great we were. You loved us because you loved us because you are love. And you changed us. And it took sacrifice. God, please continue to work in us as you've promised to do to shape us and conform us into the image of Christ that we would sacrifice of ourselves for the benefit of one another. That we would be willing to love people even if it means they reject us because we want them to hear of who you are. And God, we pray that you would use us to win people to Christ. That you would build your church through us, your church for your honor and your glory and your praise. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.